Welcome to Thriving Entrepreneur with your host, Steve Kidd, third-generation minister and 30-year business coach. Listen in as amazing, world-changing authors, speakers, and coaches share their struggles and victories and hear from best-selling authors' insight into how you, too, can live your life as a thriving entrepreneur. This is Steve. Welcome to Thriving Entrepreneur. Thanks for being with me here today. I so appreciate you. I'm so grateful for the time that we get to be together here on the radio as we look at the things that are important in your life and in your business and how you can thrive. Today, I have a question for you. What is needed? What do you stand for? What are the things in your world that are needed? What is needed? You see, a lot of times we look at um, our lives and it's so easy to not see how amazing we are. We see ourselves, uh, you know, being parents and changing dirty diapers or doing dishes. We see ourselves as an accountant going to work and helping people manage or save money. Um, we see ourselves as Christians on our knees praying, and we miss or forget to realize how important that is. And so I'm challenging you with all of these three guests. And, and if you listen to it and you're not careful, you may wonder why they're so dissimilar. But I picked them specifically because each of them in their varying places are showing up as the thing that's needed, as the person that they are, with the skills that they have to do what is needed while it's called today. We can't change the past. We can definitely learn from it, review it, and do better next time, and even apologize for things that we messed up on. But we can only live now. The future is the outcome of what we do today. And so if we want today to be a great day, then we need to, we need to do what is needed today. And in order to be able to do that, we have to look around and we have to see who am I and what is needed from me today. So my question again today is, what is needed? What can you do right now today, right where you are, living where you're planted, to make the world a better place, to live, to love, to thrive, and to be a thriving entrepreneur. I want you to think about that through this whole entire show today. Let's jump right in to our first guest. Join me in welcoming Sheila D. Griffin. Hey, Sheila, how are you doing today? It is my joy. I'm doing exceedingly well. Thank you. Oh, so glad to have you here with us. First, tell us just a little bit about you and how you show up in the world. Listen, I show up in the world as a mom of five, former foster mom, um, engaged highly, uh, not only as leadership in ecclesia or church things, but also in law and government. And so I've been a former candidate for U.S. Uh, Congress, and I have served in my community in just about every volunteer capacity I could find as I worked through many different things. I, in the world, I um, am always trying to survey or to look at a problem or a situation and see how I can contribute. And whether there's some clarity um, in our positioning or in uh, taking a separate look that's not on the page yet. And your book is called Watchmen on the Wall, um, and it's got a really cool, interesting, different perspective on everything that happened on January 6th. So can you tell us a little bit about, um, you know, your perspective on that and what brought you to do the book and stuff? Each time that I tell one of my friends that I was present on January 6th, I get a strong pushback. I had just completed running for Congress. I was not successful in the primary. So I was really working for other people's campaigns straight through November. And then I shut down. When I say shut down, I closed the office. I closed all accounts. I just disconnected. And after that, I, I really went back to my journal. I journal a lot. 
to find out about what it is that God put in my heart while I was running. Because I couldn't, it couldn't be for nothing. I don't believe that. So I went through my journals and there was one thing that was in my heart that I would be here for certain on January 6th. Now, many people know the whole systems. They are political nuts. I'm not. I'm not a person that knows exactly how many Congress people there were. I didn't know how, you know, I knew what people were supposed to be doing, but I didn't, I don't know the numbers, you know, and how people have won for the last 20 years. So me coming to Washington on January 6th was for prayer. It was out of my ecclesia office. I was a pastor or already ordained. And so I was coming to pray. Um, I arrived here and I, I arrived with a companion and we went over the day before and checked out everything and verified locations. And then we arrived on a freezing cold morning with me and my little jacket and everybody else in these big overcoats. Uh, somebody gave me gloves and hand warmers or I would have stuck to the wall. But I was simply arriving to somehow say that this is our nation, God, and this is your call. We are not Democrats. We are not Republicans. We are Americans, but I am a theocrat, which means I always vote however I find the text in the scripture to be faithful. So everybody can argue all they want to. I know that we're supposed to protect the environment. I also know we're supposed to protect babies. I know that we're supposed to take borders. I also know we're supposed to be humane to those who are at the, at the board. So you're always looking for the balance that's always intention. So my intention was to show up, to pray that I will be done, and to be able to then have accomplished my purpose. And I thought it was so uneventful. It was, I just came. There were about 2,000 people besides me. I said hi to everybody. We were friendly. And then we began to push and to pray for the nation. We were waving to senators and, and Congress people as they were coming in. About 11 a.m., we left. Because to me, I had done what I was supposed to do. So I had no idea. I knew that there was a, uh, a, a rally because there were people coming and coming and coming and coming. But most of them were going down to the mall or to the president's park. I didn't know where the president's park was and I didn't know where the event was. I just knew everybody was walking and jumping off of the metro. We followed the sound of a shofar. And so that was on the other side in the Senate park on the other side of the Capitol. And so that's how I got here. And it, it was, it was uh, I thought it was very nonchalant, like nothing really big. I'm like, really God, you want me here on January 6th praying for what? There's nothing going on here. It was really kind of passive to me. So as we drove across the bridge to enter into the Alexandria area, I thought, wow, I came all this way and just to pray and, you know, I know prayer makes a difference, but I really thought, there's nothing happening up here. This doesn't make any sense. So did you go back later that day or was that the end of it for you no, for that I day? Went, no, I went home and watched the spectacle. Huh. I went what home and start hearing the cries about bombs at the DM at the at the Democrat National Headquarters and at the Republican National Headquarters, hearing the breach about the I'm like what are they talking about? What that wasn't happening when I was there. So to me, I was like in an alternate world from what I had just seen and, and been a part of and what was happening. But I also didn't know the number of people that were there. That really, really surprised me later when I had to review tapes or things like that to actually inform myself of what actually was happening. So after seeing all the reporting that's happened on it and all the things that, you know, even a lot of times people that weren't even there are saying happened about it, um, what's your perspective on that day now? I believe that that day was a part of political um, derelictions on so many fronts. I believe because of the posturing 
because of the climate of hostile language and the, because of inability to actually protect citizens and protect our capital, that we were really in danger for real. And I don't believe we were in danger from an individual. I believe we were in danger from systems, number one. The first system that never was activated was the church. The church had never spoken up and said enough of this rhetoric. We will not vote for you if you continue to do this. And that was for senators, presidents, all of Congress, and those who were the heads of agencies. We were silent, and our silence was a permission. So the church itself and all the people who claim they love God were silent because there's no such thing as a, a something they call a Christian nationalist. That does not exist. A Christian is a person whose priority is, are they with God? A Christian nationalist priority is God is with us. So they brave politics so that they can say, God, we, when we run for an election, this is God running. No, that's not God running. That's not God running. So you get to have both parties fail and it's not a failure of God. So the first part was the ecclesia because we we just we just stayed out of everything and acted like our voice did not matter and that we cannot morally open our mouths and say you cannot derogate humans or their children and win a seat. We will not vote for you. We will we we don't care if you fight all day about policies. We matter of fact, we we like the fist fight and a few bruises here and there so that we can get some good, but not this kind of craziness. The second thing was the five different levels that I can easily identify that were never dealt with at all. And right now they're finishing up the January 6th hearings and the question's still lingering. So I started asking, as, as a former lawyer, I started asking the questions I would ask in an appellate brief. And my first question was, whether the president of the United States actions of questioning the saliency of the election results, summoning constituents to Washington for a national protest, indicating that participants should proceed peacefully to the Capitol in support of the stop the steal, failing the time to respond to squash eruptions of violent assaults, property and destruction and trespass into the Capitol should be held civilly responsible for the invitation and dereliction for untimely execution of his duty. And my answer is yes. But then I have to go on. Then there's the District of Columbia, of Columbia mayor, where the, where the mayor bow was unjustified in refusing to activate the full DC um, police detail and to place them on alert after receiving the president's request to preemptively activate. And whether the FBI was derelict and not sufficiently informing and following the protocols so that the DC police, DC mayor can make a better judgment. And the answer is yes, they are for, they forcefully put things in such a perspective that nobody had that information, not across the thing. Then there's the issue of the FBI and the CIA who were guarding Trump. Yesterday, they had testimony about the young lady who says, oh, and he was pushing because he really was upset with the CIA. Well, if you just told a crowd of 10,000, I will meet you at the Capitol. And they say, no, you can't meet them at the Capitol. As a matter of fact, we're going to take you back to the White House. And you just, you know that 10,000 people are in the city because you called them there. And then they sit you in a car for 45 minutes, according to the CIA and the FBI uh, reports. I don't know how that feels, but by the time he gets to the White House, they said he wouldn't talk to anybody. He was upset because 10,000 people now have been released without any guidance. Whether or not he would have got there and got them to go home or do something else, we don't know. We'll never know. But there was a promise, and I remember the Proud Boy testimony um, about, it was about the fourth or fifth week of the last sessions. He said, um, fourth or fifth uh, hearing. He said, well, he didn't keep his promise. That's why we, he didn't keep his promise. I'm like, mm. And he was going to be able to keep his promise how? Again? And then that's not all. That's not all. Then you have something called the um, 
Capitol Police. The Capitol Police are, is very interesting. When there's a change in the structure of government and a new party actually assumes the executive roles, all of a sudden, everything changes. So the appointments start. The appointment to uh, who's going to be on the panel for the Capitol Police, who's going to be making such and such decisions. So those positions are already being um, shifted. But the person who had knowledge was no longer in power. And the person who came in didn't know anything about the protocols of how you get the message from Mayor Bowser to the uh, Capitol Police Board. There's a board that makes that decision about calling the, about activating the National Guard. It's not one person. But guess what? There was no person with knowledge to bridge those two gaps. And the last part is the U.S. National Guard. The U.S. National Guard stood down to five o'clock. They were waiting on Congress. They were waiting on Mayor Bowser. Uh, they did their own review and report and timeline, of which none of that is in the political theater that we've been watching on the January 6th hearings. DC police has done their own report and they did the timelines that include most of the information I include in my book. And I don't make any assumptions or any judgments regarding the book. I just say we're in trouble because if in fact this was an armed militia, The buffoonery that occurred between five agencies and possibly many more is absurd. You refused to activate the National Guard because you thought he would make it a show and because he had act he wanted you to activate him in other places across the nation and you and you refused them talking about President Trump. So now you won't activate him. You got 10,000 people in the city. I'm like, what am I missing here? Not only do you have them in the city, but you have advisories of danger. So this was not anything caught by surprise. Every law enforcement agency had to notice, but every one of them cut back all their personnel, including the Capitol Police, which was half masked about 10 o'clock. They actually sent people home. And when people called in, they said, no, we don't need you. And people were scaling the walls. These kinds of things leave our government into the most weakened position ever. We used to not even swear in a president until March. We moved it to January because that was too long for a lame duck president. When you have a lame duck president, you can try to blame them all you want to, but they really have no power. Because as you can see from what happened that day, all of a sudden, nobody obeyed anything and nobody cared. And so when I'm writing the book, I'm not, I can't find that there's a Republican FBI or Democratic Capitol Police or, or none of those things are matter. What matters is whether or not these five agencies in particular have a way to secure the future of America. So what has happened is they said less than 50% have, have watched the theater. You hired a, you hired a, 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 a movie theater director to splice together these things so you can get a narrative. That does not work either. Give me the raw film and let the people see the raw film. And stop sending, what do you call them, uh, second party testimony? I heard somebody say they heard. I said, what is that? We don't allow that. We don't, we don't allow that in court. We don't allow it anywhere. It's invalid. Where are the, where are the agents that were standing there who who entered the media and started saying, that's not what we said, and that's not what was happening. They're, they're not even called. Instead, you called the head of the agency that wasn't there. And so for many, we know it's political theater, and we want more. We want something substantial. But there is a reckoning that's going on related to this. People are checking right out of government. People are saying, we don't want any part of any of this. They're not watching the program, so that means they're not changing their votes. They're not actually, they're, they're running uh, away from the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. I know the Republican Party wants to believe that people who are leaving the Democratic Party are coming to them. 
And I heard the other day that there was somebody on the Democrat Party talking about all oh, the women concerned abortion are all coming to them. Well, guess what? The swelling is in the independents. You are not making friends. You are not making alliances. And they are checking out on you. And maybe you're happy because that means they won't vote in the primaries. But what it does mean is that you've got a generation that has decided that you cannot be trusted. And the only time they'll engage and partially engage at that is at the actual November elections. That's a sorry day for America. We need contentious voices. Contentious voices is good. That's how you get a constitution. They were not in there going, yes, I agree with you, John. And yes, I agree with you too, Madison. They weren't in there doing that. They were making hard arguments about what would be good over time, not just for a sporadic moment. And so in doing Watchmen on the Hill, I wanna make sure that people understand that it is our responsibility to hold people accountable. The money that is spent in Congress is our money. They don't, they don't make one dollar, but they manage to spend past the limits of budgets and give to foreign governments the things that belong to Americans. We are reaching certain levels of absurdity. I restrict this just to January 6th, but I got to ask the questions I wanted to ask in this book because I believe that's what the people wanna know. They wanna know whether the refusal of the US Guard to consider the threats that might be posed was okay. These are generals that are saying these things that, no, we're not coming. You're a lame duck president anyway, what you gonna do? What an amazing book. It is called Watchmen on the Hill and it is focused on January 6th, but has so many great, great things. And the cool part is you can actually get the book for free today. Um, it's in the description um, and uh, we're going to watch this book just really take off. And there's so much more. You got to get the whole book in order to be able to read all of it. Um, Sheila, thank you so much for spending a little bit of time with us here on the show today. I'm really grateful. It is my joy. And please, everyone, take your time and begin to push the question. Ask earnestly. And we thank you very much. It's a privilege. What an amazing story. And what an important thing that is so needed. That is to pray, to reach out, to know what's going on, and then to do what you can do about it. And don't underestimate the power of prayer, the power of standing up, the power of saying who you are and what you believe, the power of, yes, voting. What is needed? What can you do? We've got a busy enough show. We're going to jump right into our next guest because we want to focus more on this, what is needed, as we listen to the life stories of people and we learn from what they do, what we can do. Join me in welcoming... Tim Swindle and Scott Brown. Hey guys, how you doing today? Great, Steve. Thanks for having us. Hi, Steve. So one at a time, in fact, I'll even call you out by name so you don't have to decide who to go first. Tim, will you please first tell us a little bit about you and how you show up in the world? <laughs> sure. So um, yeah, Tim Swindle, I'm an entrepreneur. I uh, was previously in software. Uh, we had a sales software that we ultimately sold to uh, LinkedIn. Um, by chance, uh, had an idea for a, a board game slash card game uh, that I just kind of wanted to throw out into the world for fun and uh, ended up uh, doing that and, and making that, you know, toying game space my, my full-time job now. I sold that previous company and you know, I, I, my mission in life is to bring fun to the world. Uh, so it's mostly done through, you know, toys and games. And Scott, same thing. Tell us about you. Yeah, I, I started in the toy and game space. It was actually, uh, call it five years before Tim did. I started in the, in the toy and game space. I was in Chicago, Illinois, and helped co-found a brand called Marbles the Brain Store, which started as a single store in downtown Chicago, ultimately grew to have 40 brick and mortar retail stores across the US. It was actually while running that, that store that I met Tim, Tim's game uh, was launched in my stores. And uh, we 
had a fun ride together. And then ultimately he was able to sell that off. And we just uh, hit it off while we were doing that and said to each other at some point we should work together. And, and now we've hit that point. What a fun thing to do. So you get to actually literally play games at work. People wonder that. They're like, you know, is it like Tom Hanks's character on Big where he sits and plays games and gives feedback? And, and my answer is, yeah, kind of. It's pretty much like that. I, I mean, there are times when it's less fun and more stressed, just like anything can become like work. But I would say on the whole, my job is really fun. And I do spend most of my job thinking about what toys and games the world needs. You both have been very careful to kind of not say the names of the games. Are there any game names you can tell us or? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the, uh, the my original foray into the space was a, a game called Utter Nonsense. And uh, it's kind of akin to Cards Against Humanity, kind of an a, adult party game, um, where you basically have two groups of uh, two groups of cards. One are um, voices, and the voice could be like pirate or British, and then other cards that just have kind of silly phrases on them. And you can uh, go around the group uh, speaking in your in your silly accent. And so uh, that was the game that I originally brought to life. Um, and we've we've had we've had others. Um, we recently did a game called Alley Hoopster, which is a uh, trick shot game where you play with a like an oversized ping pong ball that you throw off of different you know artifacts around the house and in the kit and try to make it into a hoop. So um, you know that's a, that's another recent one we've we've launched. And uh, Scott, you can share. Scott's got a much bigger resume in terms of games that he's brought to life. Yeah, I, I think if I were to add it up, I think I'm at over 160 products that I've brought to the world in the toy and game space. So lots of them. Um, one that maybe some of your listeners have, might be familiar with is called Otrio. It's a, call it a, a souped up version of tic-tac-toe. Um, so, you know, instead of the tie game that always ends in tic-tac-toe, this game fixes that broken piece and makes it so you never end in a tie. And so that's a great game that I helped bring to the world. Uh, the game that we're kind of here to talk to you about specifically is a game called Paddle Smash, which is a game that combines the best elements of, of pickleball and spike ball into one game. And so what we're always looking to do is to find things that are going well already in the space and ways that we can almost Frankenstein them. We can take bits and pieces of them and combine them with something else and bring them together into something new and hopefully better. So when you talk about pickleball and smash ball, the immediate thing that comes to my mind is those are two totally different demographics. One are, you know, older gentlemen like my uncles that are playing. And the other one is more guys that are like the age of my kids. So um, I'd love to hear more about it. How did you combine two totally different demographic things into one? I actually think you've hit on exactly why we think there's an opportunity for the product. The, the inventor, neither of us invented this. We were introduced to the inventor. The inventor is a, a dad with seven kids, six boys and one, one girl. And these boys, they play spike ball out in the yard. He couldn't keep up with them. It, it's a sport for young kids, but he could play pickleball with them. The problem was the nearest court was 20 minutes away. It was always packed. And he's, an, he's a structural engineer. And he thought, you know what? I, I can just solve this. I can fix it. I'm going to combine the two, the two games together and, and create a game that I, as a dad, can play with my kids and keep up and don't feel like I'm always getting beat. And that's actually what I think our game is doing is creating a sort of middle ground between the pickleball community, which at least has historically been a little bit older demographic and spike ball, which is very young. And maybe there's a middle ground between the two so we can help kind of bring families together and allow them to play together. And is that for the most part where you find the new games that you bring to market is somebody had a great idea and they bring it to you and then you help them bring it to light or do you, I mean, or do you do them mostly yourself? I mean, which way does it go? It's a good mix between the two, honestly. I'd say that 
of the call it 160 items I've made, probably a third of them are out of my own head. A third of them were already out in the world and I just made some new version and a third of them are this sort of Frankensteining or, or ideas that inventors have brought to me and I've helped them bring it to the world. This example with, with Joe, the inventor of Paddle Smash, Joe had this idea two years ago and it's just sort of sat there as a prototype He'd take it to family parties and they'd have a lot of fun with it, but he didn't know what to do with it. And that's where Tim and I come in. We both have a lot of experience knowing how to make something. We know how to take it to a factory and get this thing made. I'm not saying that that part is easy. It still has taken us. We met Joe almost exactly a year ago, and it's taken us a full year to have product almost ready to sell. So it's a long, laborious process but we know how to do it. And that's, I think, what keeps most ideas from getting out into the world is that people have them, but don't know quite what to do with them. That's very important. So uh, the, let's, let's stick with the game for a couple more minutes and then I've got a couple other questions for you. Um, it, it's something then that you can play in the average backyard. Is that my understanding? Yes, absolutely. Uh, it's an outdoor active game. Um, it's perfect for you know, backyards, bringing to the beach, uh, you know, your local park, et cetera. So, you know, we specifically designed this. That's part of what Scott and I will do is that a lot of times, you know, these prototypes that we'll get, that we'll see from an inventor are pretty rough. I mean, they've glued some things together, but they're they're not exactly ready for mass retail. Uh, so you know, what we did as far as you know, our process was we took the core concept, but then we have to then work with our designers and our engineers to then create a version that is available for mass market. This one is portable, durable. It all you know, wraps up into a, a, almost like a suitcase type of a, um, you know, experience to grab it from your car and bring it out to the beach. That's cool. So somebody that has an idea in their head, I mean, maybe they brought it to something they take to family reunions and maybe that's just an idea. Do you work with, I mean, are you actively looking to people like that or um, are you overloaded with ideas now? I'd say semi-actively. I think it is never prudent to turn off that, <laughs> that antenna. Um, you know, always want to be on the lookout for the next opportunity. I would, I, I would say that this current opportunity, when it came about, I was very busy and swamped and very easily could have said, no thanks. The, you know, I, I would say at least a couple of times a week, I have someone say to me, I've got a friend or family member who's invented a game and they want to show it to you. And it would be easy for me to turn some of those down and I almost never do. And I probably would say I never do. And, you know, in this case, I took the time to take a look at it and it was absolutely worth pursuing. So I would love to continue to see ideas. That doesn't mean I'm going to be the one to always help bring it to market, but I'm always happy to help them know what to do next or whether it's worth kind of doing the next thing um, is to kind of give my, my input put my two eyes on it and give them some some advice. So of course, whenever somebody comes up with something and it's fun for their family, um, they assume, or at least they want, for the game to blow up and be like the things both of you mentioned at the beginning of the show um, that you guys did where somebody acquired you and you made you know, enough money that it was worth talking about. Um, how realistic is that? I mean, how many... Like what percentage of games that people invent ever actually make it to mass market appeal? Scott, do you have a good idea on what that number is? I mean, it, it certainly is is the uh, anomaly, or you know, it's 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 rare that something is going to truly take off and become this uh, ubiquitous item. You know, I think there's a lot of products on a yearly basis that will get brought to the market, but. I mean, it's probably in the low single digits in terms of, of a percentage that are going to do any kind of real volume would be my guess. I don't know if Scott has more information on that. Yeah, I mean, I would agree that it's rare, but I would also never caution someone to not pursue something because it's rare. Um, 
so much of what makes something work, you don't really know until you put it out there into the ether and let people react to it. And so, you know, I mean, a piece of advice I, I often give to an inventor who has only shown their idea to friends and family is to put that idea in front of people that don't know the person who created it. Um, and in fact, I do this all the time with my own ideas. I'll take something to a family party and I'll present it as, hey, I've got a buddy that invented this. I promised him we would take a look at it. Let me know what you guys think. And it allows them to not feel like they're hurting my feelings. And I get true and honest feedback. And that's where I really can gauge whether something has, has at least some legs, is if they're giving me honest feedback, thinking that it's something I'm gonna pass along to someone else. When they know it's my idea, I almost never get true and honest feedback. So that's just, it's one of those things that when people ask me if they should pursue it, I almost always say yes, but I always say yes in a small way. So what I mean is figure out ways to test whether this idea is viable as cheaply and quickly as you possibly can. Um, what scares me is when someone will spend, you know, $50,000 on a, on a steel tool in China before they've even sold a single unit and have no idea how to sell it. Um, that's when I get scared. But if they can figure out ways to do small production runs, get it in front of a marketplace and find out if it's viable quickly and cheaply, great, you should, because lots of concepts out there could have easily died on a vine um, if they hadn't have put it out in the world. The one other thing I'll add to that is that, you know, it's all, de it's all determined based on your definition of success too. So, you know, having something that becomes, you know, called viral and, uh, you know, is doing hundreds of thousands of units a year in sales, um, that may be overwhelming to somebody. You know, a lot of times uh, you may be very happy just bringing something to the world that, you know, you're doing as a, as a fun side hustle, or, uh, you know, you just have a Amazon listing and you're just selling it on Amazon and it's having some nice additional income on the side. And, and that's also great success. So uh, each of you, if you would give us some helpful advice to the inventor out there that wants to come up with the next best Cards Against Humanity or whatever, you know, pickleball, or I mean, you name it, doesn't matter what genre, uh, but you know, the next best game, what's one piece of advice you could give people that are listening today? One thing we do ourselves is, you know, you try to tune your ear a little bit uh, into kind of what's happening uh, in, 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 on social media in particular. So you see certain trends that may be getting popular on social media. And your brain just starts to look at that and think, oh, well, that would be interesting if that was a game. You know, I mean, as I gave the example earlier of one that we've done called Alley Hoopster, I mean, that was born out of seeing the viral videos on social media of people playing, um, you know, or excuse me, doing trick shot games in their basements. And uh, it was just, a, you know, a spark for us to say, hey, maybe that could be something, you know, bigger. Yeah, in, in addition to some of the tips I've given, I would say another one that I love to do and kind of I'd say every game I've created is sort of this is to think about what's already working in the world. So, you know, let's say as an example, a great word skills game is Scrabble and then a great, uh, you know, a great quick play game is is Uno. Well, so can you figure out what what's great about Scrabble and what's great about Uno and merge those two great pieces together? It's exactly what we did with Paddle Smash. We, I, mean, I play Pickleball myself. I play it almost every morning, love that game. And so I'm going out in there, there in the world and seeing how quickly this is growing. It's the fastest growing sport in North America. So my antenna goes, okay, there's something there. Uh, it, quickly growing sport, people, seem to love it. It bridges a lot of age groups. And then I go to the local park and I see 10 sets of spike ball out there. I mean, it is a massive success right now, spike ball. Um, and so, if, you know, my antenna goes, okay, ding, there's another uh, data point. Is there a way to combine elements of both of those games into one game? And I think that's really how 
almost every game is made. There's very few new things in the world. Almost everything is a kind of reshuffle of something else. And so it's this Frankensteining of best pieces together to create something new. So for people who would like to get, uh, you know, their own pickle smash, how would they go about getting that? So it's currently, we, we just went live uh, with our website at it's paddle smash, uh, paddle smash.com is the website. And uh, the game is, is currently still in production. So we are uh, not yet selling, um, we're, we're, we're pre-selling the units right now. So we anticipate uh, it being available to the general market in uh, September of 20,000, sorry, 2022. Uh, so about another month and a half or so from here. Perfect. Um, and if somebody would like to run a idea past you guys, how would they get in contact with you? Yeah, have them reach out to me directly. I'd be happy to consider concepts. And my email is scott at paddlesmash.com. And uh, I, can be the, I can be the one that fields them and then uh, present them to Tim or others uh, beyond that. But yeah, I, I, I consider concepts every day, all day, and it would be happy to consider any concepts someone would like to send my way. Well, Tim and Scott, I really appreciate both of you spending some time with us here on the show today. Thanks, Steve. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Steve. What a fun thing to do, to really be able to look at what's needed by people, to take your own skill set, and to use that to make the world a better and even more fun place to be. What a great way to live as a thriving entrepreneur. Let's jump right in on the what is needed here with our next guest. Join me in welcoming Aaron Rubin. Hey, Aaron, how are you doing today? I'm doing excellent. Tell us a little bit about you and how you show up in the world. Uh, tell us, uh, so, so my, again, I, uh, I grew up in Chicagoland uh, as a kid and then uh, ended up getting into accounting, which is strange. I don't think most people uh, think about something uh, that you get into as accounting. Uh, but I found my passion, um, kind of right, uh, right second semester uh, of my junior year, and and loved it. Uh, and so started uh, started a career in accounting somewhat uh, after I went to law school, uh, and uh, and uh, and then I joined uh, my current firm uh, after three years in public accounting. Uh, and so right now I'm working with um, executives on their stock compensation. Uh, so for those that uh, have usually their stock options um, and, and, and a good amount of, of equity and, and helping them think about, um, you know, strategies around keeping more of it um, so they don't pay as much tax. Um, and then the strategy of, of how to divest it and then um, how to do good with it. So uh, a, lot of, a lot of times we talk a lot uh, about um, charity and um, giving back to the community. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and I love it. Uh, and it's, it's, it's been amazing for me. Mm, I love that. I always love it when somebody comes up with something like accounting, it's a perfect example um, that they just are passionate about and they love doing that most people hate. <laughs> yeah, well, it was, it was completely accidental. Uh, you know, and, and I think that's how most of life works. Uh, I, uh, I, I, had, uh, I was not an accounting major, uh, obviously when I, was, uh, when I started college. I was uh, environment economics and politics, um, which was an interesting major. Um, and I came back from studying abroad and I needed a, uh, a class to take to fulfill a, a requirement for the major that I was in. And they said that intro to accounting counted as this prereq for this major that I'd been for you know, the last two and a half years. And I said, oh, okay, I'll, you know, I'll go ahead and try it. You know, my, my dad was an accountant and, uh, you know, it, it never occurred to me to be an accountant because I didn't want to be what my dad was. And, um, and gosh, first, first day I showed up to that class and I thought, oh, my gosh, this is, this is what I'm supposed to do. Uh, and, and by the end of the week, um, I had changed my major because uh, it, was, it, was, it was so impactful. Uh, and, uh, and, again, I think that's how life comes at you, though. 
Absolutely. I love that so much. So on your uh, name thing here on Zoom, it says that you're the pre-IPO um, stock options whisperer. Um, can you explain to us first just what is a pre-IPO? Yeah. So, so there are companies that um, they're on a trajectory to go public or maybe even be acquired. Uh, and, um, and so their stock is liquid, meaning they can't sell it readily um, on a market. So um, they have choices to make because there are tax consequences whenever you buy stock like that, or of course, when you sell stock. Uh, and there's different, um, different opportunities um, to minimize tax along the way. Uh, and if you plan for it, um, you, can, you can keep more of what you earn. Mm, love that. I think all of us want to know how can we legally, hopefully, um, you know, keep more of what we earned. Um, you know, what are some of the just really basic secrets that every entrepreneur should use and know to be maximizing their profits? Yeah, so, so I think for entrepreneurs and, and people who are early on uh, at, at companies, there's a couple things I think that are super powerful. Uh, and, and the first is uh, a item in the tax code, perfectly legal, you know, written out there, you know, black and white, uh, called a qualified small business stock. And uh, in qualified small business stock, if, you're, if you have U.S. corporate stock um, issued to you directly from the corporation um, or issued from the corporation, uh, and uh, you've held it for five years. And it's, uh, the corporation is involved in a trader business, so it can't be a holding company um, or an investment company. Um, they actually have to you know, sort of do something. <laughs> and uh, uh, and uh, you know, after you know, that, that five-year period of time, assuming you're the trader business, and you, and you get it while the company is young enough, um, which is below $50 million um, of assets on the books, up to $10 million or I think 10 times the basis of the stock is excluded for federal income tax purposes. So what, what does that mean? That means that if you have the stock and you check all the boxes, which you know, are harder to check than you think, but if you check all the boxes, $10 million of it's not gonna be taxable um, for federal purposes. But you have to think through some of those decisions of are you gonna be a C-Corp? Um, and you know, how much assets do you have? How much do you need? Um, and, and just making sure that you, you do check all those boxes. Um, and in addition to that, you know, if, if you're really, if you really have a lot of faith uh, in what you're doing and you think it's going to be super huge, um, you can actually gift that some of that stock. Let's say you think your stock's going to be worth $100 million, not just $10 million. You take that $100 million, you can actually split up the stock to different to friends and family. They'll get $10 million of exemption too. You can, you can create trust for your children um, or for other people. Um, and the trust will get $10 million too, it's a per taxpayer thing. Um, so again, tremendously powerful um, with the right amount of planning. The other thing that's a little more accessible, I think to, to people um, is what's called an 83B election. And uh, in an 83B election, what happens is you're gonna tell the IRS, um, hey, I wanna be taxed on my stock options before they technically vest. Um, and, um, and there's a few caveats there. Um, you know, one, you actually have to prepay for the stock options, um, or or you have to, um, or if they're restricted stock awards, which is a little different, um, you know, you have to um, you have to make that election. Uh, you know, when when the time comes, you have 30 days to make the election, and you might think to yourself, well, why would I want to be taxed on something before I actually get anything? And and there's a, there's an answer for that is is that usually valuations when you join a company, uh, especially if it's a young company, are very are very low. So with low valuations, um, you, the difference between what you're going to pay for the stock and what the stock is actually worth, usually when you first start, it's zero. So you're going to tell the IRS, hey, I want you to tax me at zero, and they'll do it. You know, as long as you have that 30-day window and you actually have an ownership interest somewhat, you can choose to be taxed. You get taxed at zero. And then as that stock vests, there's no tax due because you've already paid the stock. You've already paid the tax. Of course, the tax is zero. But again, you can avoid tax as that company hopefully grows uh, and save yourself some money. And this proves definitively why it is that looking at somebody's taxes may not necessarily tell you anything about how much money they did or didn't make. 
Yeah, no, absolutely not. I mean, it's tax returns can be helpful. Um, the tax returns will, will reveal complexity a lot of times, but, um, you know, especially when you start talking about, you know, larger numbers, you know, if it's, um, again, I, I love people, you know, say Jeff Bezos pays no tax. Well, the reason why Jeff Bezos pays no tax is he lost so much freaking money when he was, when he first started Amazon. Um, you know, so it's, um, again, everyone has their own thing. Uh, and uh, again, I, but you're right. You're absolutely right. So if I understand this correctly, um, uh, you know, I helped establish, been a partner in a couple of C-Corps that were established. And, uh, you know, a lot of times you will actually give a value to because you're looking to raise funds privately, um, you know, to the original founders. So you all, you know, quote unquote, purchase but, you know, a hundred shares of stock at a dollar each or a thousand shares at 10 cents or, you know, 10,000 shares at a penny, you know, whatever. Um, in that particular case, you could then say, you know, hey, I paid the hundred dollars. I want you to tax me on that hundred dollars now. And then, you know, somewhere in the future, because that's, of course, always the reason why you do a C-Corp when you go public and it's a $10 million company you still don't owe those taxes? Did I hear you correctly? Well, when you, when you sell stock, um, you're going to owe the tax. That, that you, that's, that's hard to avoid, although, you, and again, use charities and you can do all sorts of great, great stuff. Um, but, you know, again, I'm talking more along the lines of, of, of getting taxed when you buy it. So, you know, when, when you purchase those shares, you know, when you were starting this company, um, you actually purchased them for value. Um, and so you, 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 you established your cost basis, you know, right up front because you paid $1,000 or $100, whatever it was. Um, the, the issue comes in is when you have what's some sort of stock award. Um, so, so a company will do, especially for early employees, maybe even founders, is that they'll say, okay, we'll, we're going to set aside these 100,000 shares for you. And um, over time, they're going to vest. Uh, and uh, and then you'll you'll have a right to, to to keep them. Now you can't sell them because they're generally because they're uh, they're not public. Um, although there there are exceptions um, every now and again. Um, but but as those as those 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 shares that they promised you vest to you and 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 they end up you know in your name. Typically, what happens is let's say it's a four year vest. In year one, maybe the maybe you know you, the day that you bought the day that they were granted to you. Um, they were 10 cents a share, but wouldn't you know it, the company is great. And by the end of year one, when the first tranche vests, now they're worth a dollar ten a share. So you now have to have, you know, and so now, you know, whatever that, that I think was, did we say 100,000 shares? <laughs> Let's say 100,000 shares. Now 25,000 of those shares vest. Um, and so now you're, you're, uh, you're, you're, te- you're going to be taxed on, you know, 25, uh, 25,000 shares, which are vested, times the 1.1. Even though you've never sold a single share, you're vested, you're taxed when the vest occurs. Um, and that that's what you're trying to avoid. And so if you would have done that A3B election, you know, back when you got the shares or when they were granted to you, when they were granted to you, um, you know, you would have paid tax on, you know, 10 cents times 100,000. So you would have paid tax on $10,000 of value, not of, you know, $25,000 plus worth of value. Um, so it's, it's simply a way of, of avoiding, you know, paying tax too early. Um, in addition, um, when you make A through B elections, you start the clock for long-term capital gains and for qualified small business stock. There's lots of great reasons to use an, to use an A through B, but it will not save your capital gain soul uh, because eventually when you do sell it, unless it's a qualified small business stock, you are going to owe the tax. So one last question for you here. When should a company start thinking about if their intention is, there is their exit strategy is to go IPO, when should they start thinking about and planning um, their IPO process and all of that? Yeah, the, in, in, well, I, again, my, my bailiwick is not, is not planning the IPOs of companies. Um, but um, yeah, I'll, I will say, you know, if you have, if you're putting together stock plans, whether it's stock awards or whether they're 
incentive stock option plans or non-qualified stock. I mean, again, there's, there's lots of different um, types out there. Start thinking about strategies early on on how you're going to help your employees and how you're going to help yourself um, make good decisions. So a lot of times, you know, when, when I talk with clients, you know, I, they have an opportunity to, you know, to get this stock. And I always say, hey, call finance, call up HR, see if you can do that A through B election. Um, and nine times out of 10, they can't because it just, it just isn't in the plan. And if, if you, if, if they would have, and if the, the people that set up the plan originally would have thought about it, it would have made sense to put it in there because people could have saved a ton of money. I, and I have seen it. I had a client at, um, uh, at Wealthfront uh, and um, that client, you know, was able to do that A through B uh, when his options vested, when his options were granted, his options were granted. And, um, you know, it, it, it was great. But again, it's just so often um, they don't do it. Um, the IPO process itself, again, you always start with the end in mind, um, as they say. Uh, and so, you know, if you, if you think about it early on, you know, especially as you're starting the company, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm not big into angel investing, but, you know, you need to have, you know, what your metrics are, you know, for angel investors, whether it's for acquisition or IPO, like what, what, is, what is that path? Um, and, um, and again, that's, that's not where I come in, but I've, I've seen enough of it <laughs> to know you got to start thinking about it early on um, or else you're going to make mistakes on setup. So Aaron, for somebody who wants to work with you, how can they get in contact with you? Yeah, so a couple, couple of ways. So our website's great. Um, you can book an appointment um, right on there. Uh, and you know, we're happy to talk to anyone. Uh, and uh, we, again, because we are both a, a wealth firm, and a tax firm, which actually prepares tax returns, um, you know, we can we can give you some pretty good information, um, even if you don't end up becoming a client. Uh, uh, of course, uh, WRP uh, Wealth on Twitter, uh, as well as you know, we're on Facebook and LinkedIn and all that good stuff. But our website's great; lots of great blogs. If you want to know more about A through B elections, if you want to work qualified small business stock, um, you know, just a, a wealth of information um, uh, coming up. And, and of course. Uh, the economy's a little bit different now. Uh, for those listening in the future, uh, this is uh, mid-July, 2022, uh, and uh, and so we we are having a new blog, hopefully coming out in the next week or two, about you know what happens if you get laid off um, from your tech job, um, what what should you be thinking about. So again, we're we try to be as timely as we can. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for spending some time with us here on the show today. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And just like that. We're at the end of another show already. It went by so quickly again, but I hope that out of all of it, you gave some thought to what is needed, that you remember more than anything else. You are uniquely brilliant. You were created for a purpose, and the world does need you. One of the things that's needed is for you to show up. What can you do today? What is the way that you can maximize you in this world today, in wherever you are, whatever's going on, to just be the best version of yourself while it's called today, and to live as a thriving entrepreneur? I hope you'll do that. Thanks so much for being with me. Until we're together and next time, I hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening to Thriving Entrepreneur today. If you want to get your question answered, send an email to questions at wehelpyouthrive.com. We look forward to you joining us again next time. If you're an author who's on a mission, stand out with your brand out. Check this out, guys. Yep, everything's marketing, and marketing is everything. Your existing book can become a best-selling book, or even, hey, like mine, a number one international best-selling book in five days. Listen, if your business isn't known by everybody, it's obscurity and that's death, right? The same thing is true for your book. If you're not happy with the way your book is performing, you got that far and then it just fell off the face of the planet kind of feeling, go to yourbestsellertoday.com, schedule a talk with Steve, 
believe. It's risk-free. It's guaranteed. It's proven. We've done it thousands of times. What are you waiting for? Yes, yourbestsellertoday.com. This time next week, you could have a beautiful seal on your book and get the attention that you deserve. Reach the people that you came to serve. Come on now. What are you waiting for? Grab a pen. Here we go. All you got to do is book a call, yourbestsellertoday.com. Go to yourbestsellertoday.com. Book a talk with Steve. It's proven. It's guaranteed. It's going to happen. All you have to do is say yes to your destiny. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.